this week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. As we move on into St. Luke's Gospel, we come to the Annunciation, the Visitation, Magnificat, Nativity of St. John the Baptist, and Benedictus Part 1. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. A hymn penned by Martin Luther, In peace and joy I now depart. Can we think of death as a slumber? Can we think of death as more than just the enemy, the wages of sin? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Friday afternoon, October the 28th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk about the sweet names of death with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. He's author of A Catechism on Death, Life, and the resurrection. We'll spend some time with Chris Rosebro in our feature this week in Pop Christianity, hearing bits of a sermon preached by Saddleback's new female teaching pastor, Stacy Wood. And we'll conclude our series on paths to Lutheranism, this Issues Etc. Reformation Week, hearing Molly Lackey's story from non denominationalism. She's author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Confessing Jesus, the Heart of Being a Lutheran. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of A Catechism on Death, Life, and the Resurrection. Brian, welcome back to Issues Etc. Thanks, Todd. The Sweet Names of Death is not a concept original to you. Where did you find this? I was looking, I think, on the eschatology section in Francis Pieper's Dogmatics. This is a third volume, page 511. There's this a couple of beautiful little footnotes. One that says this, such mortis dulcia nomenia are being gathered to one's people, depart in peace, etc. This is the sweet names of death. And then he goes on in the next footnote to, to quote Luther, where he says, Scripture has a lovely manner of speaking of death and the deceased. And then he sets forth that lovely manner. Scripture does not call it death, but sleep. We must henceforth learn a new speech and language in speaking of death and the grave, not human earthly language, but divine celestial language. So I stole it from Pieper, who stole it from Luther and all the other Lutheran theologians. While we're going to talk about these scriptural ways of discussing death, I want to make two things super clear. Death is still the enemy. It's just defeated, which is why we can name it sweetly, right? That's right. You know, Christianity often presents a more nuanced way of looking at things than we want to naturally look at things. So so as an example, if you look at a person and you say, is that person good or is that person bad? Or are people good or bad? Well, we have the answer in the scriptures is that we're created good and then we're fallen, but we retain the original value that we're 
created in in the image of God, and so we are God's creatures who are fallen creatures. It's a it, we are both good and bad, depending on how you look at it. And the same thing is true of death. If you just ask the question, was death good or bad? The question is, well, it depends. It's a subtle way of looking at it. It's it's really a nuanced way. The scripture, on the one hand, understand that death is the punishment for sin. The Lord warns Adam and Eve in the garden, on the day that you eat of it, dying you will die. There will be a double death upon the on the day that you find yourself eating this fruit. And and Paul confirms this really clearly where he says, the wages of sin is death. Death is the punishment for our sin. And so death is the enemy that the Lord comes to fight against. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, this great chapter on the resurrection, it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The way that Paul mocks death in that passage when he quotes the Hosea passage, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? It's really quite beautiful. So that we understand death as the enemy, and yet death is the defeated enemy by the resurrection of Jesus. And now the Lord Jesus uses death to bring about his ends, to bring about his work. He uses death as the way to bring us from this fallen sinful life to the beginning of glory, which reaches its fullness in the resurrection. So that we still consider death an evil to be fought against, we still keep the fifth commandment and fight to preserve life in every place we can. But when death does come, then we can receive it as a gift. The sting is taken out of death because the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but praise be to Jesus who gives us the victory so that death now comes to us as a welcome gift from God. These are also not euphemisms as we would ordinarily think of them in our parlance where euphemisms are sometimes an attempt to deny the reality of death or to somehow soften the blow in an unrealistic way. Right. Some of those euphemisms passed on, crossed over, uh, sorry for your loss. We hear that a lot of times. Um, they've been called up yonder. Whatever these euphemisms, we we can understand them from a natural perspective because death is hard and mourning is difficult and we miss the people who've died. We wish they hadn't died. We all know instinctively that there's something wrong with death. And this is one of these fundamental Christian insights that's confirmed partially in our nature and experience is that we're not meant to die. That's not what we're intended for. We're intended to live forever. And these colloquialisms are a human way to try to come to grips with that reality. But the Bible speaks plainly about death. We should too. We should try to avoid the colloquialisms and these euphemisms as much as possible, but to recognize then that the biblical language is in fact better. Just as an example, we always hear people say, well, I'm sorry for your loss, which is tr it's true enough in a way, but the scripture comes along and calls death gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And it's certainly not our gain when someone we love dies, but it's their gain, and that's the perspective that the Bible gives. It gives us the eyes of Jesus, which are able to see and recognize a blessing in the midst of this result of the curse, this result of the fall. So as much as our 
language can be shaped by the scripture, we recognize not only is it right, but it's also good. It's better. The words that the Bible uses for death are better than any that we could come up with ourselves. Real quickly, before we get into the first one drawn from Genesis, what is death? Death is the unnatural rending of body and soul. How about this, Todd? I'd love, I've been thinking about this this morning. I'd love to run it by you. But we are meant to be body and soul always. Those two are never intended to be separated. And death comes along and separates the two. For the Christian, the soul goes to be with the Lord Jesus. The body, whatever happens to it, happens. It decomposes as it waits for the gift of the resurrection. And that unnatural separation of body and soul will come to an end at the resurrection when the Lord puts back body and soul for all people. So that's what we understand about death. And I was thinking about this, how the devil's always trying to tempt us to Gnosticism, that is to put the soul against the body and to say that I am really my soul trapped in my body. My body is simply an instrument for my soul. And it occurred to me that this temptation to Gnosticism to make the real me the soul part of me and the external part, the body part of me, is not the real me, that that's just a little taste of death before it comes. So if the devil can tempt us to be Gnostics and to separate our bodies and souls before we die, he's, he's kind of brought us into a pre-death state of death. The first one that I'd like to discuss comes from the book of Genesis, gathered to his people or gathered to one's people. What is that all about? There, there's a lot included in this. We can see it a couple of times in Genesis 25, just as examples. And this comes up a lot of times in the Old Testament when describing someone's death. But here's Genesis 25, 8 as an example. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So there's the name for dying. It comes up just in a few verses later, talking about Ishmael, who lived for a hundred and 37 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. So this talks about death as the gathering, as the reunion. And this is so wonderful because so often we think of death as a lonely proposition, and people ask me these kind of questions all the time. Will we recognize our loved ones in heaven? Will we know the people there in heaven? The very first way that the Bible talks about the blessed death of the Christians is by being gathered together. Heaven is a reunion. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following, where he talks about we'll meet together in the sky. So there will be a, a cloud of witnesses in heaven, a great homecoming will be welcomed by those who died in the faith before us. And that's a, that's a wonderful comfort. This one kind of goes hand in hand with one that's drawn from a parable of Jesus where the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus dies, and he is taken by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham kind of standing in for the whole family of God. What are your thoughts there? Right. That parable or story that Luke gives us from the Lord Jesus about the two deaths, the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man going to torment and Lazarus going to comfort, is probably the clearest statement in the scripture about what we call theologically the intermediate state, how it is between our death and the resurrection of all flesh. 
And there's these two places, there's hell, and there's Abraham's bosom, paradise. And there's a division and a gap between the two that cannot be overcome. It's not 100% apparent how much of the language that Jesus uses to describe this state should be understood literally and how much should be understood parabolically as a teaching tool. For example, is it possible to see from heaven to hell? Is it possible to yell across the gulf and so forth? I'm not sure we should take it all literally, but we should certainly understand everything that's being said there is that there is a division upon death. And for the Christian, we are brought to paradise and to a, a knowledge, a realization of paradise, of joy and bliss that we did not have in this life. When the rich man dies, things change for him. He goes from feasting sumptuously to longing for a drip of water off of a beggar's finger. And the poor man, who had nothing in this life except for Moses and the prophets, faith in the promise of God, goes from longing to eat the crumbs to resting at Abraham's bosom. So there is a change in this life, and for the Christian, we expect this glorious change, this comfort, and this peace to be ours upon the moment of our death. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is our guest. We're talking about the sweet names of death. We'll be in Luke 2. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Next. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C., the registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org Looking for a faithful Lutheran church in East Central Oklahoma? Welcome to Trinity Okmulgee, a friendly and faithful LCMS congregation only 40 miles south of Tulsa. Hi, this is Pastor Chris Teebs. Check us out at trinityokmulgee.org. That's trinity, O-K-M-U-L-G-E-E, -E, all one word, dot org. 
See you soon at Trinity Okmulgee, Oklahoma. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are talking about the sweet names of death. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest, author of The Catechism on Death, Life, and the Resurrection. Uh, Speaking of departing, uh, in Luke chapter 2, we have, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace from the song of Simeon. Yeah, this is very similar to what Paul also says in Philippians 1, where he's talking about how I don't know if I should stay or go. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire, he says, is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. So this language of departure is used there by Paul. It's also used by Simeon. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. And we sing that hymn so wonderfully every time we come to the Lord's Supper. Just like Simeon who took Jesus into his hands and said, now, Lord, it's there's nothing left. It doesn't get any better than this. Anything I could have possibly hoped for and longed for, according to your promises, has, has been accomplished. There's nothing on the bucket list. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to depart. And to not depart in violence or not depart in uncertainty or not to depart in fear, but to depart in peace. I'm ready to die. I I think it's wonderful that every week we take up those same words and we come to the Lord's Supper and we say, that's it. I couldn't ask for anything more in this life. I'm also ready to die. I think this is also beautiful. Whenever I'm ministering to people on their deathbeds, I'll sing the Nunc Dimittis and send them with these words, hopefully, to the glory that the Lord has promised. So when I will tell the elders, if I've visited someone, they're close to death, I'll oftentimes say, I sang to them the Nunc Dimittis. But now what happens is if I ever go see my elders in the hospital and they're sick and I start singing the Nunc Dimittis, they say, not yet, Pastor, not yet. But it's a beautiful way to rejoice that we too are ready to die. And why? Not because we've accomplished everything that we want to accomplish, or not because we've checked off everything on our to-do list, not because we've lived the good life and there's no more works to do or no more accomplishments to achieve. No, we're ready to die because the Lord Jesus has taken us from condemned sinner to beloved saint, because the Lord Jesus has forgiven our sins, because the judgment that happens after death was already accomplished by Jesus on the cross, so there's nothing to condemn. There's just joy waiting for us. So we're ready to depart and go and be with the Lord, be with Christ. We're ready to depart in peace because of the things that the Lord Jesus has accomplished. And this, Todd, I think is a good thing to reflect on as we think about death. Is that readiness for death is not by works, but by grace through faith. The only way to be ready to die is not by our own accomplishments or our own efforts or our own whatevers, the only way we can be ready truly to die and face the judgment that comes on death is to trust in Jesus and to know that his death and resurrection prevail before the throne of God, that his blood truly does cleanse us from all sins, that we are atoned for, that God is not mad at us, And when we know that and when we trust that, it doesn't matter how many things are undone. It doesn't matter how many dreams are unfulfilled. 
it doesn't matter when death comes, if it's at the end of a long, full life, or if it's at the beginning of a short life, where all the hopes and dreams were cut short, it doesn't matter. We're ready because Jesus brings us uh, through death to life eternal. That's what makes us ready to depart in peace. The theme of departure is also picked up by Paul when he's writing to Philippians. He speaks of his what he expects to be his imminent death as a departure to be with Christ. Yeah. He talks about this also in Second Timothy, his last letter, I've run the race, I've kept the faith, I'm ready for the crown laid up before me. So it is a move, death is a move from this life to the next. We do leave this earthly life into which we were born and in which the Lord placed us, and we do enter a new sphere. We receive a new vocation when we die. And everyone around us also receives a new vocation. Husbands become widowers, and and wives become widows, and, and children become orphans. There's new vocations that are given when someone dies, both to the one who died and also to those who are left behind. It's good for us to think about. But especially for us who are dying, we are leaving something and going somewhere else. We leave this sinful, fallen world, and we... We enter into the heavenly realm where we rejoice in the Lord Jesus with the saints and angels gathered there before us. Where do we find this idea of being taken from evil? Yeah, I think Isaiah 57 verse 1 is the best place to see it. We have it something like it already in the depart because we depart from this fallen world. And so we have this desire to leave this world, not only for the joys that are there set before us, but also because the sin and the trouble and the temptation and the evil that exists in this life. So Isaiah 57 verse 1 says, The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. The righteous man is taken away from evil. So the, the Lord is not only giving us a departure, but giving us a deliverance. That's why Paul can say, I desire to depart and be with Christ. To be there before Christ is much better, and to be away from this life is also a blessing, because this life is full of so many troubles, so many toils, snares, dangers, temptations, afflictions, so much sin, disease, a disaster, all these things. And we carry this as a weight as we go through this life. We recognize that when at last the Lord gives us the gift of death, that all those troubles are removed. We're taken away from these things. So that another comforting thing that the scriptures will give us when they talk about eternal life is the wiping away of tears. Or, or to think about Revelation 7, where it says that we're clothed in these white robes, and the Lord is our shield, and the sun doesn't strike us, and there's no more death, and there's no more suffering. When it says there's no more death, that means all the things that go along with death, all the sickness, all the disease, all the sin, all the temptation, all the demonic activity, and the devil's snares and tests and temptations that he throws at us all these attacks, all this is gone. And so we rejoice not only to 
be brought to that which is good, but also to be taken away from what is evil. In fact, this is probably what we pray every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we simply say, deliver us from evil. People ask me, Pastor, can you pray? Is it okay to pray that the Lord will bring death to you? Especially people who know that death is close by, they're on their deathbed, they're praying for death to come. Maybe some people are seeing the suffering of their loved ones and they pray that death would come quickly instead of linger. And my answer is, you prayed for that every time you prayed the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil, that the Lord would deliver us from every evil of body and soul and, and property, reputation. And finally, when our last hours comes, take us from this veil of tears and bring us to himself in heaven so that we're always hoping for and longing for that moment when the Lord will deliver us from evil. You had mentioned this early on, and it really is a big one, especially in, in Jesus' parlance. He speaks sometimes of death as sleep. Yeah, this is great. Jesus invents this language for death, which is so wonderful to think about. Matthew 9, it might be the first time, I think so. Lazarus comes a little later in John 11. But in Matthew 9, 24, Jesus, remember, goes into the house, and there's the the mourners are downstairs. They're playing the flutes, and they're all crying. And Jesus says to them, go away. The girl's not dead but sleeping. And they all start to laugh at him because they know what it is to be dead. Everybody knows what it is to be dead. And yet Jesus says, no, she's not dead. She's asleep. The great thing about that language for death, sleep, is that when someone is asleep, they wake up. And Jesus is there to wake this little girl up. In Mark, it's, he gives us the original Aramaic, tabithakum, little girl arise. And sure enough, the girl wakes up. Luther is brilliant on this. I've been working on an essay on this particular theme in Luther's works for a while. I haven't published it yet, but it's seeing things through the eyes of Jesus. Luther says that Jesus looks at things differently. He sees this girl, and while everyone else in the world sees death, he sees sleep. Just like Jesus looks at us, and while everyone else sees sinner, he sees friend, forgiven, saint, righteous one. Jesus has a different set of eyes. He sees things differently. And this language, sleep, is the way that Jesus sees death. The same thing in John 11. This is verse 11, where Jesus says to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to awaken him. And they say, if he's asleep, he'll wake up by himself. And Jesus says, guys, come on. He's dead. This is what I'm talking about. He's dead. I'm going to raise him from the dead. So that Jesus looks at death and he calls it sleep. It, Paul picks up on this, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Sleep implies waking up. Our death implies the resurrection. Or 1 Corinthians 15.18, where Paul talks about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. There's so much great Christian tradition that has arisen out of this language. I know of a sleep in Jesus' name, or even the idea of the rest in peace being on the on the tombstone, or the cemeteries being God's dormitories. All of this arises out of this beautiful way of seeing and speaking that Jesus gives to us, that death is asleep. And one day, this has to be the clear part of this language. It means that one day and one day soon, Jesus will wake us up. 
Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is our guest. We're talking about the sweet names of death. That was sleep. How is it different from Hebrews and Revelation, which speak about death as rest? We'll answer that next. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod needs faithful Lutheran laymen, commissioned ministers, and pastors to serve on its boards, commissions, and agencies. Nominations are open for the boards of regents at our Concordia universities and seminaries, the LCMS Board of Directors, the Office of National and International Mission, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, Concordia Publishing House, and the Commission on Theology and Church Relations. Learn more at issuesetc.org nominations. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod needs you. Issuesetc.org slash nominations. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting. lcms.org slash stewardship. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. LCMS Stewardship plans educational opportunities and provides ongoing support for pastors and lay leaders as they implement Christ-centered stewardship plans in their congregations. Check out their free resources at lcms.org stewardship. Managing the gifts God gives us, LCMS Stewardship, lcms.org stewardship. We're talking about the sweet names of death. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest. Brian, before the break, we were talking about sleep. How is that different from what we find in Revelation and Hebrews where the term is rest. Yeah, I think that's right. They're very similar ideas. The rest that is before us, the rest that I think in Hebrews is especially going to be contrasted to our work. So now we we are in a time of work, and when death finally comes, we, well, the Revelation language is rest from our labors, and our works do follow us. So there's a day and a night, and we're in the day, and and death brings the night, the time of, of rest from the labors. I don't think that means that there's nothing to do in the resurrection, but all the works and labors and heroic endeavors of this life, that era is ended, and we've passed on to the life to come. So that rest is there, and I think that serves especially to inspire us. There'll be time for rest later on (laughs) now is the time for work those who work work in the daytime so we're to get after it now and we know that the rest is on the way and i think that's the the 
encouragement that the Holy Spirit intends to give to us from that language. It is also referred to as a, a Sabbath rest. How is that connected to that Old Testament concept? Well, it is an amazing thing that in the middle of the Ten Commandments, which are telling us all the things that we are to do and not to do, to worship God and not have idols, to use the Lord's name rightly and not vainly, to honor our parents and to protect life and marriage and property and our neighbor's name and to guard our hearts and be content. In this list of all the things that we are to do, there comes this command to not work, to not do, to stop. Six days you're working, on the seventh day you're resting. It's part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. It was required under the Old Covenant that Saturday would be a day when no physical manual labor was done. But that's pointing to a much more profound reality in Christ. There's so many Sabbath controversies that Jesus is engaged in so that he finally has to establish in some ways a rule to understand the rule. He says, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, we are not the servants of the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was given as a gift for us. But Hebrews pushes it even further when it says, and, and maybe Jesus does too, like in Matthew 12 when he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you Sabbath. When Hebrews says that there's a Sabbath for the people of God, it means that when it comes to our salvation, it's accomplished not by our work or by our efforts, but by the resting of faith which simply receives the righteousness of God in Christ, not working or deserving or earning or achieving, but simply believing. And so all of this incessant storming of heaven by our own righteousness and by our own works and efforts has to be put to a stop. And that's the Sabbath that we have in Christ. That's the rest that we have in him. It's that, that we cannot achieve righteousness by our works. If there was a law by which we could be perfect, then the gospel wouldn't be necessary. But being a Christian is a matter of resting in the work that Christ has done for us. So there remains a rest for the people of God. And Hebrews says, therefore, labor to enter that rest, which sounds like a contradiction. Work to rest? If you're laboring to enter into rest, then you're not resting. <laughs> and if you're resting, then you're not laboring. It seems like the two are set against each other. But we found in the history of the church that that has been, especially as we come up on Reformation Day, that has been the work of the church, that we have to fight with every ounce of energy and life that we have to protect the doctrine that salvation is not by our own works and efforts but completely accomplished by the death and resurrection and ascension and the sending of the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're always laboring to enter that rest. We're always striving to make sure that works stay distinct from faith when it comes to our salvation. And when we believe in the promise of the gospel, that that dying of Jesus is for me, then I enter into that saving rest that the Lord not only commanded but promised. When we use that euphemism, they passed away, it's implied that they passed from life 
to death, but John talks about passing from death to life. Why is Could that important? It's, he gets it backwards, Todd. That's all. It's just wrong. <laughs> no, this is, I think it's so great. This should slap us right in the face. Is that we always say, first life, then death. But the Bible says, no, no, no. First death, then life. <laughs> passing from death to life. So this is John 5.24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. All who are listening, all of us in one way or another, are mourning the death of those that we love. This life is one long funeral procession, and so we're all in the midst of mourning, and this is one of the most beautiful passages that comes to comfort us in the midst of that mourning. Is that person that you're mourning, how should we speak of them? Not like they've died, but they've passed from death to life. They've passed through death to life, that they are alive and finally alive. In fact, in the biblical way of understanding things, you and I, Todd, even though we're alive, we're dying. We're one step closer, one breath closer every moment. The people who are listening are one podcast closer to death than they were before they started listening. We're, all, we're on the way to the grave. We're in the midst of death. But when we at last breathe our last and are brought from this death, we are brought to life. I remember the first funeral I preached, Casey was the man's name who died, and this was the text for the funeral. And I said to the family, Casey is not dead, he is finally alive. And that's how we speak of those who die in the Lord, that we've passed from death to life. Paul talks about this, 2 Timothy 1.10 and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, the salvation, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here's what Jesus says in the letter to the churches, Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, so that we move from death to life. It's beautiful. And in fact, if we understand baptism, as this death and resurrection, we've already made this move. I've been buried with Christ. I no longer live. I've been, I've been buried with Christ in baptism, Paul in Romans 6. I've been crucified with Christ, as Paul in Galatians 2. I no longer live, but the life I do live in the flesh, I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we've already died, and we're already living eternal life, so that our death is now just passing further beyond the reach of death into the grip of God, which is to be surrounded by light and immortality. You have mentioned this one earlier, but I would like to end with St. Paul again in Philippians, where he not only says, I long to depart and be with Christ, but he says, to die is gain. Mm -hmm. What does he mean by that? <laughs> Paul is racing towards the finish line where Jesus waits for him and for you and for me. So to depart from this life is to be present with the Lord. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, to put off this tent is to be further clothed, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And I think my favorite of all the sweet names of death, which wasn't on Dr. Pieper's list, is from the last chapters of Revelation where it says that we will see him face to face. So right now we walk by faith, but when we open our eyes in death, we will see Jesus 
and on that face is a smile, not a scowl. When we close our eyes in death, we will open them, and our ears will be filled with the hymns of the angels. When we close our eyes in death, we leave behind all sickness and all sin and all sorrow, and we wake not just with the forgiveness of our sins by a promise and held onto by faith, but now our soul will be completely purged from all sins. Can you imagine not even being able to sin, not even wanting to sin? It's beyond your capacity to sin. We'll be holy, not just by faith, but by sight. And we'll be gathered there to the throne room of Jesus, where he will welcome us and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, who wouldn't long for that? That's the gain that Paul talks about, to live as Christ, to die as gain, which means for Paul and for everybody, for all Christians, the worst thing now is the best thing. So the worst thing that happens to us is that we die, and that's the thing that we want most of all because we are finally ushered to the prize which Jesus has won for us to wait for the gift of the resurrection. So we work and labor according to the Lord's will in this life below, but we wait for the Lord to take this evil death and to bring it to us as this great good and treasure. It's not just true for Paul. It's true for you, Todd. It's true for me. It's true for every Christian. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of A Catechism on Death, Life, and the Resurrection. You'll find a link to it on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Brian, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Chris Rosebro is with us next for This Week in Pop Christianity. Today, we will dip into a sermon preached by Saddleback's new female teaching pastor, Stacy Wood. How does Jesus define the Christian's identity? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Confessing Jesus, the Heart of Being a Lutheran. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or look for Confessing Jesus at our website, issuesetc.org. Confessing Jesus, the Heart of Being a Lutheran, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, 1-800-325-3040, or issuesetc.org. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org.